welcome to the Men in Lead podcast. What is up, my Sunlight Samurais? Welcome to another episode. I have Raja Burrows on the podcast, and we talk about all things building confidence, overcoming fear, setting goals in life, and getting stuff done. He has lived many artistic lives, from being a singer and a songwriter, professional musical theater actor in New York, film and TV actor in Los Angeles, and now most recently being a stand-up comic. So please enjoy this conversation with Raja Burrows. So I just want to make exactly sure how to pronounce your name because I don't want to mess this up. I love it. Uh, it's Raja, like the tiger in Aladdin. Raja, okay. I, I just wanted to make sure because I don't want to say, have you ever seen the animation Raya and the Last Dragon? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I get Raya a lot. It is oh, funny. Okay. It, it, depending on where the person is from in the world, they will pronounce my name, whatever is. So like people from your part of the world will say Raya. People from Latin American countries will say Raja. <laughs> um, and actually when I talk, like I live in America, and when I'll say, oh, my name is Raja, usually people will think I said Roger. Roger. <laughs> I've heard it all. <laughs> yeah, for sure, Ron. All right, so I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. I must say, you have really good energy. Have you always had this good energy? I, you know, I have. I, I feel like I have. Um, I've, you know, we'll, we'll get into it in the interview. I've had, a, I've had a very, a pretty interesting life in a lot of ways that has... I feel like has really encouraged me and rewarded me for having a very like buoyant, positive, whatever kind of energy. Um, and so one of the things that I have learned as like, I really like became a man in my own right was to learn how to balance that with the necessary introspection, you know, so that I'm not just like happy-go-lucky all the time and getting screwed by problems that I'm pretending don't exist. So you, would you say you're generally introverted or extroverted? That's a great question. I would say uh, broadly extroverted, okay. mostly extroverted. Um, I Listen, it, it comes down to like, how do you define your terms? Like, are we like Myers-Briggs definition, Susan Cain's definition of introverted or extroverted? The way that I look at it is I... I view the world, I am, I am very aware of the ways in which I view the world subjectively. I'm very like, what is my plan? What is my, like, what lens am I viewing the world through? What is my path? Like that sort of thing. But I get a lot of energy from being around other people. And I'm also very aware of the ways in which my environment, like, you know, shapes, shapes how I feel. And maybe not my personality, say, but certainly my mood. And I'm, I'm very attuned to the outside world. I like that. So from an early age, you were always like, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, so, you know, it's funny. when If you had asked me that two years ago, I would have been like, yeah, I've always done my own thing. <laughs> and then, you know, as the global conversations around privilege have developed, um, and certainly the pandemic, I think that we've all become more aware of the ways in which our environment shapes us. Um, so the, the best way I can put it is that seed has always been there. Um, the general feelings of like 
self-reliance and determination and personal agency, like those things really have been there um, since I was very, very little. Um, but they were also nourished and encouraged. And, you know, I'm, I'm a singer by trade. I did spent 10 years in New York doing musical theater and I've worked regionally and off Broadway at like, you know, high professional levels. But from an early age, I was always pretty good at it. And my parents encouraged me, right? So, you know, if my parents were less encouraging, if they're like, no, you should just be a Spanish teacher. What are you doing? You know, would I be saying that I have that kind of self-reliance? I don't know. But um, I think I've had it. And I also recognize the ways in which it was encouraged. I like the way you phrase it. It's definitely a seed that someone has and it can be nurtured. Would you say that was mostly nurtured by your parents or did you also have to do a lot of nurturing yourself? I would say, listen, my, so I was adopted. I was born in India in like not the greatest of conditions. I was born prematurely. I, you know, when I came over to America, I was eight months old and weighed eight pounds. Like I was the size of a newborn, bilateral ear infection, pneumonia, like the works. Um, and then, oh, you know, v- miraculously, I got healthy and developed an immune system. And now I'm like a perfectly normal, healthy, whatever kind of person, right? Um, so, you know, I think that in those in those early, early years, my parents were so instrumental in, you know, really being attentive to me. And again, they had the resources to be very attentive to me um, and just really sort of trying to give me the best life that they could, right? Um, And, you know, they were always very good about like, listen, if you don't, if at any point you don't want to do music or acting or singing or piano like whatever like don't do it like we're not gonna a we're not gonna waste money on lessons if you don't care but also there are so many things in the world that can bring you joy and make you happy do those things right um you know and and doing I, you know, was doing theater from a very young age. I played in a band from a very young age. And, you know, it was from my perspective, it was always very much like at at every stage of the game, it becomes more competitive, right? College is more competitive than high school. Um, The early years of professional career are more competitive than college, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so basically at every culling stage, I always made it. Like I was, I was always good enough and skilled enough to go to that next level. So, um, you know, to sort of bring it back around to this idea of self-reliance and, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. I mean, y- yes, it was a seed there for sure nourished by my parents, but also nourished by a lot of institutions, right? Like the school that I went to was like, oh, you're dope. We're going to give you the leads. You know, college was kind of hit or miss, but at the end of it, we had a big showcase and the top 
15 people from my musical theater graduating group, whatever, got to go to New York and sing for a bunch of casting directors and agents where I found my agent, my first agent in New York. And they were like, oh, you're really good. Here, let's give you this opportunity. So I, I, you know, I have been given a lot of resources in the form of, you know, education and opportunity, which was very encouraging. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you is that uh, a lot of people struggle with that value aspect and then they struggle to put themselves out there. But it seems like you were nurtured and people were telling you that you're dope. That yep. How did you feel like, even though people were telling you that you were dope, did you always have, not always, but did you still yeah. have insecurities or how did you feel about them? I, insecurities, that's, that's an interesting way to put it. I've always felt really good about my skill level at everything I've ever done. I've never doubted how good I was. And more importantly, I, I generally speaking had a pretty good grasp of how skilled I was at something relative to professionals. Right. And I was always able to, you know, maybe not when I'm in the recording studio but like if i record a song and then i listen back to it in my car i can hear if it's like oh this is not radio quality like oh i i have work that i need to do to make this better so i've always had a lot of a very clear idea of sort of where i lined up in the pack right and the insecurities didn't really start to come so college was tricky. There was actually a lot of racism that I dealt with in college because I went to school in the Midwest in America, which uh, in the early 2000s, not the most racially friendly place for people who looked like me. It was very much like, oh, we want white people as the leads. And if you're not white, then we want you in the ensemble to make the world look diverse, but we're still going to cast all white people as the leads. But again, at the end of that, I got this huge opportunity and I found an agent and I moved to New York and it was great. So I'm like, eh, okay, sort of. It actually wasn't until I got to New York and really started to do, you know, 10 auditions a week, usually at least one audition for a Broadway show per week. Um, that's, I don't know that I would call it insecurity because again, I've never doubted my ability i was like no 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 i'm i'm dope as hell like i'm legitimately fantastic the problem was that my feeling about myself and quite honestly the feedback i was getting like this wasn't me just being delusional like i would have broadway casting directors and broadway direct like the highest level of people being like oh no you're really really good you're gonna make it and then I just kept not booking a lot of things. And that messed with me. Yeah. When it was like, okay, I think I'm dope. Let me make sure that I'm not crazy. And I would talk to other people and I have other people hear me. And they're like, oh no, you're really good. And I'm like, great. If I know I'm dope and you know I'm dope, why is this not material? Like, why am I not on Broadway? Like, what is happening? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can, I can re- relate to that because I feel yeah. like it's not that you have this insecurity about yourself. You know, like I'm confident yeah. in my ability, but still yeah. you're not booking as much things as you should, or you're feeling like, okay, well, I'm, I'm great, but I'm perhaps not the best in the world at it. So perhaps I should just work on my skill more, more, more until yeah. I am amongst the best and then I can go out. But that's kind of like the wrong mindset because you have to start somewhere. Yeah. And Exactly. Well, and here's the thing. What's, what's funny, for a very long time, I was not athletic. That's a lie. Let me try that again. For a very long time, I didn't understand my own athleticism. Because I always grew up, I, was, I always played sports and I was always pretty good at them. And I am very naturally kinesthetic. But being in the world of the performing arts, it doesn't work like sports. Like there's, there's no real equivalent of, I'm just going to go to the driving range and just work on my seven iron for an hour. That, that doesn't really exist in the world of the performing arts right? Or rather it does. But if I work on my seven iron at the driving range for an hour and do that consistently, eventually when I'm actually playing around to golf, my seven iron is going to be great, right? And it, and it will translate into a better score. That's not how the performing arts works, right? And so it's funny. One of the things that I did struggle with is like, okay, let me keep putting myself out there. Let me keep trying to get better and better and better. And then realizing that, oh, wait, no, 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 no. I'm already past the threshold where being good enough actually matters. Yeah. And that was a like, wait a minute, hang on a second. So I'm good enough and I'm not having the level of success that I want or that I think that I want, but being better doesn't actually won't actually help me. Yeah. Right. And so I've recently gotten very, very into fitness for exactly that reason, because I'm like, okay, my job is chaos. My job as a performing artist, as an actor, as a singer, as a whatever, nothing but chaos. So I need something in my life about which I am passionate, where there is a clear correlation between the work that I put in and the result that I get. Yeah. I like that. I, I want to, I do want to ask you more about exercise, but I still want to go a little bit back. Yeah. About, yeah. 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 I so love let, it. Let's talk about fear setting because like you've been into acting, you know, you're going for auditions for some people that mm-hmm. can be very scary. Recently mm-hmm. you started as a, as a standup comic. Now for yeah. a lot of people that is like extremely intimidating. You're in front of a lot of people they can yeah. immediately boo you. You get that yep. feedback immediately. So mm-hmm. uh, I, did you just like naturally go into it or did you kind of like have to muster up some courage and get a plan to no. do it? Totally natural. Um, stand, it's funny. Stand-up is one of my favorite things to do. And I think that one of the reasons that I think I took to it as quickly as I did is that the craft of stand-up was always really clear to me because I grew up watching Saturday Night Live and also listening to music on the radio. And obviously neither of those things are exactly the same as doing a three minute stand-up bit, but the core mechanics are basically identical, right? Your job as the comic or the songwriter 
or the sketch writer or whatever, if you're doing any sort of short form thing, create an expectation, set the premise, either fulfill that expectation in the chorus or in the case of a stand-up comic, you subvert that expectation. And then in the second verse of the joke, you expand on that. You then come back to your subversion of the original premise. You maybe have a little bridge and then you end with the punt. Like it's just writing a song. Right. So that those mechanisms, I was like, oh, oh, I just do this and this and this and this. And then I talk about myself. I think that the reason I didn't have a lot of fear surrounding stand up comedy is that I've just been on the internet since I was 18. Right. Like I, you know, I joined Facebook in 2004. I was one of the OG Facebook college users. And since they started putting out, you know, and I was also on MySpace and writing blogs and things like that. So by the time I got to stand up now, you know, when I'm 35 or whatever, I've already had so many years of, quote unquote, putting myself out there that at least on that level, it's very difficult to embarrass me or hurt me or to, you know, whatever. And then, you know, if, if somebody has critique or criticism or whatever, it's always very concrete. It's always like, you know what? I think that this joke doesn't work. I think you need to invert this. I think you need to work on the phrasing of this sentence. I think you need to set up your premise more clearly. I think that you can deepen your thinking here. I think that this is a superficial take or whatever it is. Right. But that's just, that's just shop talk. That's not personal. Yeah. So have you ever like had a bad experience where you were either like immediately booed or um, something that could have wrecked your confidence a little bit? <laughs> okay. This is it. I've been waiting to tell this story on an interview since it happened. This happened, you know, eight years ago. And when it happened, the idea was everybody I talked to about this was like, oh my God, you're going to, you're going to give this in an interview someday. And it's going to like when, when somebody asked like when you ever bombed or whatever, like, so this is my, I bombed story for the first time uh, in a public interview setting. You're going to love this. So I was doing a, just like a, like a concert reading, right? So songwriters wrote some songs, some musical theater songs, I was singing a couple of songs and one of them was a trio. Now, when you do these sorts of concerts, usually people have the music in front of them, right? It's sort of understood that like, we're just given a concert. We got the music in front of us. It's all good. I show up to the first rehearsal. The other two people are fully memorized and I am not. So already I'm like, okay, well now I look like an idiot. Okay. So I learn it and I like mostly know it. And I'm like, all right, good. Get to the show. And the theater's really dry, right? It's in, it's in this old building in New York City. And so I was like, oh, let me drink, let me drink some water. Let me drink a bunch of water because like I'm really dry. And I was like, ooh, I know. I'm going to be smart and go to the bathroom before I have to sit in the audience, right? To get up, go to the bathroom. Things great. I sit back down. Five minutes later, I'm like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. 
<laughs> like very badly. And my song is not for another 12 minutes. Okay, all right, fair enough. It's fine, we're good. So I get up and for whatever reason, and to this day, I don't know why, all of my pages were completely out of order. And like, like I am, I am a professional. Like I don't make mistakes like that ever, ever. Like that's just not a thing. But on this day, on this faded day, my pages were out of order. So I get up there and I have to pee like crazy. And I sort of am like, okay, we just got to get through this. We're not even going to think about it. We're just going to read what's on the page and just sight read and just hit it and hope. First page goes great. Second page goes great. I flip it over and I look and it's like page seven. I was like, oh no, <laughs> that's not even close. Like if here's the thing, if it were page four, right? Cause I printed it on, on two sides. I'd be like, oh, oopsie. Let me just flip this page over. And then page three will be on the other side. <laughs> nope. I mean, it was like one, two, seven, eight, four, five. <laughs> I, I just stopped singing. Yeah. <laughs> like I just stopped. I was like, there's no, there's no rescuing this. I just need to stop, stand here like an idiot, reorganize <laughs> my pages in front of everybody while the other two people cover for me. Yeah. I finally get it together. We finish the song and I've like, I've never crashed and burned. Nobody booed. They were all very nice about it, but it was very clear that like, oh, he messed up bad. Like he was not even close. (laughs) Oh my gosh, man. So how did you recover from that? Like, what was your mental process to, to get out of it? Or was it just like automatic? Yeah, no, it was very much a like, oh man, that was wild. Oh, well, I'll see you at the audition tomorrow. Like, it's not, and it's funny. I, I've i been thinking a lot about, you know, it's funny that, you, that you're, you know, your podcast talks about like being elite, right? And I've been really thinking myself about like, what does eliteness consist of? And what does eliteness mean? And maybe the biggest, the, the biggest um, defining characteristic, I think, of, of those who I would consider elite is with a foundation of excellence, for sure, right? Like, you have to have a baseline of being really, really good. But it is, it is the, like, how quickly can you process what happened and recover? Right. Cause you don't want to just blow past it. Yeah. Right. You don't want to be like, oh, well, that sucked. La, 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 la. Right. Because then you might make that same mistake again. Right. You have to take that time to go, okay, let me take 30 seconds to just logically debrief what happened. Figure out, like, where did I mess up? This and this and this. Okay. This was kind of just a perfect storm that I couldn't dance my way out of 
okay, fair enough. All right, that's the thing that happened. And then I can move on from it, right? I looked at the situation, I go, okay, let me just be a little more prepared. Like if it looks complicated and it looks like it's a trio and it's not just me up there, let me give myself a little bit extra preparation so that if the pages are out of order, if I have to go to the bat, like if these other things go wrong too, I'm not quite as screwed, right? But that whole process, 30 seconds to a minute tops and there's no emotion involved. There's no judgment. There's no, oh, I should have done this. Oh, I screwed it. No, that, that doesn't even enter into my head because it doesn't help. Yeah. So, so just to make it clear, you yeah. do stress, right? <laughs> I ish. I stress a little bit. Stress what is I the wrong word? Maybe nervous. Like nervous. Yeah, no. No, no nervousness. I really I just there are so few times when I really have felt like nervous or anxious or uneasy in any sort of like professional setting. The times when I honestly, the times when I feel nervous or unsettled are like in personal situations when you have to be really empathetic and like listen to somebody who has to tell you some bad news or like if I accidentally hurt somebody with something that I did and then I have to just like be vulnerable and be really present for them to share how what I did made them feel. That's, that's what's nervous for me. Right. But I think that's also, I mean, anybody would be nervous in that situation. Um, But those are, those are really the only times and I'm like, Ooh, I do not know how this is going to go. So can you, my good sensei, please coach my audience on how to get that state of nervousness? Yes. Yes. I got you guys. I got you. And ladies, if you're listening to this as well, I got, I got everybody. Um, here is step one. The more, the more you can frame thoughts as observations, that is really step one right? The whole, the whole thing of like, when you have a thought, notice the thought, don't judge the thought. I know that that is everywhere. I know that everybody says that, but like, it's so true, right? So I'll give you, okay. So we're talking about our, our mental state, right? But I want to give you a concrete example uh, because I think it's a little easier than like just talking purely abstractly, right? So I mentioned I'm into fitness. I'm, you know, trying to slim down. We're getting into summer. I want to start booking more roles and putting myself out there professionally. But eh, gained a little weight during COVID because there were no gyms and I was not in the great mental state. What are you going to do? So I've been trying out some new diets and trying out some new macro adjustments and things like that. And for the past couple of weeks, I haven't seen a lot of progress. So once I observed that what I was doing wasn't getting me the results I wanted, I was like, fantastic. That doesn't work. Let me try something else. I was, you know, and then, then I looked back at what I was eating. I was like, you know what? I have a lot more salt in my diet than I think 
is helping me. Great. So for this week, when I bought my groceries, I was mindful to not get as many salty things. And during this week, that's the thing I'm going to be tracking. Right. But there's no, but, but what I didn't do and what I had to somewhat train myself out of is going, ugh. If only I had known what me now knows, then I wouldn't have made that mistake. Oh, how could I have, right? But you didn't know. You couldn't have known until you, like, by definition, you were just gathering data. That's all any of this is. And maybe that's the best way to put it, right? As every experience we have is just a data gathering opportunity, Yeah. right? If you, if you go, if you're a miner and you go and try to, I don't know, it's 1849 and gold still exists in the hills and you go and you try to mine for gold and you don't hit anything, you're not like, ah, I should have known there was no gold here. No, that's ridiculous. The whole point is seeing if there is gold, right? What you don't want to do is go, oh man, I've been here for four days and there's no gold here. Let me keep mining this place that clearly has no gold, right? And so the quicker you can recognize like, oh, this thing that I'm doing isn't working for me. It's not serving. I've, I've given it what I consider to be a fair try. I've explored this. I'm not seeing results yet, but it's also not trending upward maybe pivot, right? Mm-hmm. Which is different from results are coming slowly, right? Because now if it's like, okay, I'm seeing results, but not as quickly as I want. Fantastic. I love this. Stay with the thing and look and see if there's a way that you can be a little more efficient. Maybe look and see like, oh, you know what? I, yeah, I can definitely... I'm doing better, but I actually can probably up the vegetable dosage. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Right. So I'm not, I'm not abandoning it, but again, you're just, you're just looking very objectively and you're looking at it as sort of, you know, the scout, you are your own scout. So the scout went out, got a bunch of Intel comes back. And now it is your job as the general to sift through the intel and see what's worth pursuing, right? Well, the general doesn't judge the scout for what the scout... The scout doesn't know. Scout's just gathering things, right? And the scout doesn't judge the general for not picking the thing that he gathered because that's not... They have separate jobs. But the problem is that we, the human, and we, you know, those of us who are trying to be, like, fully actualized... We are both the scout and the general. Yeah. Right. So. So I'm also kind of thinking in terms of that most things that induce anxiety for people is what they think other people is going to think of them. So for example, if a guy has to go and talk to a girl, they're afraid of rejection or someone has to go to the gym. They're afraid people's going to laugh at them because this is the first time or you're Mm -hmm. going on stage as a comic. You're afraid people's going to boo you. So you're kind of like always that's kind of like the fear that's in people's minds so i got gotcha. you that's what I gotcha. i'm trying to say like how do you get over i that? see i see i got it got it got it got it got it got it okay 
So I can actually tell you exactly where that gotten, got beaten out of me. Um, and that I would say, again, besides my just like, oh, I'm very good and I'm good enough that I don't really get booed or judged negatively by other people, right? Or if it is, it's always in some very convoluted way of like, that was great, but not what we're looking for, right? But where that, that thing of like, you know, getting knocked down and just going back again. Um, you know, in New York, I literally did 10 auditions a week. I would sometimes do two or three in a day. And this isn't, I mean, again, usually they're for strangers. Eventually I got to know people, but you know, you, you have about 75 seconds in the audition room at most. You walk in, you say hello to the people at the table. You put your book of music down in front of the accompanist. You say, I'm going to be doing this song. I start here. I end here. That's the tempo. And they're like, great. Off to the races. You sing for 45 to 60 seconds and you leave. That's the whole thing. So when you do that 10 times a week, 50 weeks a year for eight years, there is no part of you that has any energy to spend yeah. on what the peak, you, you don't have that luxury because any spoons that you spend wondering what other people might be saying about you is energy that you could be investing into your performance, into the thing that you're doing. Now, here's the thing. If people do boo you, let's say they don't laugh at your jokes, right? First off, I would say that most of the time we live in a society, people aren't going to be like overtly terrible to you, right? Most of the time, especially if you're like, if it's amateur night, I've never been to an amateur night that was like, we are not a supportive crowd. We are jerks to each other right? No. When you're just starting out, everyone's really nice to you, right? But let's say some of the jokes don't land. Amazing. That has nothing to do with you. Truly, right? That's, ooh, all right. You know what? Let me, let me get off stage. Let me look at the joke that I wrote. See like, okay, I was really expecting a laugh there. Maybe if I change the phrasing and then, the, and then here's the trick. You got to get up the next night and try the different joke. Yeah. Right. But what about different audiences in that regard? Because like some audience can laugh and other mm -hmm. audience not for the same joke. It has, it has been my observation and experience that that most of the time matters less. So for instance, it, let me do it this way. I think, an, I think an audience can only be great, right? Rarely are you going to have an audience that's just like everyone's in a bad mood, no one's laughing at it. Like, the, and here's the thing, that happens so infrequently that like, I would, I would generally assume 
that there's something I, because I, I can't control if the audience is good or bad, right? So that's not even in my, that's not even in my consciousness because I can't control it. What I can control is, okay, how about this? Let's say you have a really dead audience, really bad audience, and Chris Rock comes on stage. Chris Rock will probably do just fine. Yeah. Right? Kevin Hart can walk into basically any room, and if he does his job well, he can win over a, a rough crowd. Okay, great. So clearly it's possible. And quite honestly, my job as an entertainer, a comic, a singer, whatever, is to inform the energy of the room. There's nothing better than being like, ooh, all right, they're a little tepid. That's kind of the vibe. All right, so maybe I'm not going to, you know, come out and hit them with everything I got. Maybe I'll warm them up a little bit. Let me get to know them. Let me see what's like. There's always something that I can do. And then listen, and figuring out what that is, that takes time, that takes practice, that takes experience. But again, the key is you have to get back up again the next night. That just whatever it is that you do in life, that is the job. Yeah. So, so in summary, I would say that what kind of like eliminate this anxiety and nervousness is mm -hmm. as you mentioned, repetition, repetition, doing it over and over and over until you become really experienced at it. But let's yep. say, like you mentioned, Kevin Hart, he's excellent. He has all this experience so he can turn a crowd around. Or yeah. let's say, for example, Tony Robbins, he's talking in front of a massive crowd. He's done it so sure. many times. He knows exactly how to rally them yep. up. So it's mm -hmm. about that experience that you gain that's going to make mm -hmm. you a better person. So earlier you talked about you have like this business experience, but you also have this personal experience. You mm -hmm. know, so like the, let's say the better you become as a comic, um, that gives you ex um, like confidence in one aspect of your life. Sure. But let's say you're going to talk to a girl. Maybe that's not going to give you that same um, confidence. But the thing is like, the more you talk to people in general, the more confidence that's, you are going to get. It, it's still a skill mm -hmm. that you have to train. And I, I exa yes. exactly wanted to ask you this is that, yeah, I think the best way to train a skill is that you talked about as a comic, you, you bold, let's say, for example, one night, the next night you mm -hmm. have to go back on. So a lot of people yeah. are like, I, I tried it, I failed, I'm going to stop. But the thing is, yeah. like, the best way to learn something is because you're forced to do it. You have to do it. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. And being able to go, you know, it, it's the sort of thing where it's like, okay, if the first time it doesn't go well, but you're interested, right? Do it again, Right give it, give it a few times. Like you have, you know, give it a few times to be like, do I, do I even like this? And if you like the idea of it and you're like, I don't know, man, there's something about it. That's worth it. That's worth pursuing. That's, that's where I, you know, when I see a lot of people, when they let their anxiety get the best of them, that's what breaks my heart is when they let their anxiety get the best of them in spite of being interested and wanting to and thinking that there may, man, there maybe could be something here, right? That's what breaks my heart, which is different from, you know, I did stand up once and, oh, I don't like anything about this. Great. This is not my ministry. I, you know, and, and even that, that's not a bad experience. That's you. You tried something and you're like, okay, I know this isn't what I want, so this is going to help me clarify what I do want. Mm 
right? Well, let's say there is something that you're like, I'm interested. There's something about this that I really, really just like, but I'm scared. I'm nervous. I don't know. On some levels, the repetition is really, really important just to get accustomed to, you know, doing badly, right? Or learning or whatever it is, right? But also by doing the repetitions, you learn the patterns. Like at this point, if you asked me to write a sketch, right? Like for SNL or whatever, I could give you the bare bones structure of any sketch, any song, any stand-up routine, you know, whatever, just because I've done that kind of thing so much. And so when you get that kind of, you know, repetition and um, experience, that's sort of what you end up leaning on is you're like, okay, I know that this goes like this, da, 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 da. Okay. And I think that that is sort of where you can start to build your confidence is through that predictability. Because I know, you know, again, doing a a million auditions, I know exactly how many steps it is between the front door and the piano. There's no awkwardness. It's smooth. I go step, step, step. When my body is open and facing the table, I go, hey, how's it going? I don't break my stride. I like it, that stuff just gets so smooth, but you have to give yourself the opportunity for it to get smooth. Yeah. Have you ever found that you, you, we talk about like this experience that you can, and it almost can sound like um, the predictability is what gives you confidence. But what if something unpredictable happens? I can assume that you still maintain that confidence because you're so oiled into doing this whole thing. This is another, this is a, again, real thing that happened. Um, I was doing a show once. This is like a, an off-Broadway, like basically as professional as it gets in a lot of ways kind of show. Um, it was like, the idea was that it started off-Broadway and if it went well, it would transfer to Broadway. Like that was the goal of the show. That did not end up happening, but it was treated with very, very seriously, huge budget, everything. And I remember... The opening number is this really complicated, like props and this and that, and people running on and off stage. And it was a very spectacular thing. And I remember one night about two and a half weeks into the run, three weeks into the run, I glance off stage and I see that one of the props isn't set, right? Now it's not my responsibility to set the prop which means that I can't, so you don't touch props that aren't yours. That's just the rule, right? You trust that everybody's going to do their job. But I happened to look off stage and I was like, oh, that prop isn't there. Huh? Well, we have another 30 seconds before it has to be there. I'm sure they're just like running around and figuring it out, whatever. I run off stage to grab the thing and it's not there. My body didn't stop moving and doing, I was still dancing and doing all the choreography because my body knew what happened. And so then my brain could go, 
okay, my body's doing this. I'm singing. And now my brain is like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get it? Can I get this thing? And then I happen to, out of my periphery, see that it had been set late. And I, again, I just knew the show so well. I was like, okay, I have four and a half seconds to dart off stage, grab it, slide on. That person's going to go there. So there will be a hole here that I can move through. Right. So all this is to say when unexpected things happen, if you're that well-oiled, you can handle anything like your body and brain are just like, Oh, we got this. Have you ever noticed that that kind of confidence carries over to other aspects of your life as well? Every, every second of every day. Yeah. Um, every second of every day. Um, you know, because I think that really what it, for me, what it came down to and like becoming the confident person I am today, right? Uh, listen, it really just comes down to the understanding that everything can be handled. There is nothing in like the tangible material world that, I don't know, handle it. It's fine, whatever. And also, it's not that fragile. Yeah. Like, oh, no. Like, let's say the basket didn't get there. Like, let's say this one little tiny bit didn't work. It would be awkward for four seconds, and then no one would care. Yeah. Or remember. And then I go off stage, and I, you know, then I talk to the stage manager, be like, hey, the basket wasn't preset. I'm so sorry. I didn't know what to do. That's a four-second conversation. That's it. It's, it's done. It's all good. Um, and I think that just understanding that like, you know, life, life just happens and people are going to be people and there's going to be errors, but ultimately it's fine. And my job is to just do the best that I can in any given situation, whatever that may be. And it's not that serious. It's all good. It's fine. Yeah. How do you find... It sounds like you have that value inside of you already. It's yeah. not that you find value. Uh, because I'm this good, that gives me the value. Because... Oh, it, no, 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 no. So I... What are we in? We're in April of 2022. So I am now, as of this recording... Um, I am now over six years sober. And let me tell you, I don't think that I would have anywhere near this level of confidence and self-assurance if I hadn't decided to get sober. Because I was starting to go down exactly that path that you were talking about, that my value comes from my ability to deliver or perform or what I can do for other people or other people's opinions of me, whatever, right? And then once I stopped drinking, it became very clear very, very quickly that no, that has to come from within me. There is no other option. And so for the last six years, it really has been me understanding all of the ways in which I have agency in this world. And also when there are things that are outside of my control, 
right? So let's say I get on stage and it's a, it's a tough crowd. It's a small crowd. It's rainy out. They're not really super enthused to be there. Okay, great. I can't change the reality of the situation. I can't change the fact that it's raining. Can't change the fact that there are only four people in the audience. Cool. But what I can do is I can connect with those four people. I can make this show right now the best that it can possibly be right now. Of course I can. And listen, whether or not I succeed at that, who cares? It doesn't matter. The point is that I try to make the best of any situation. I definitely want to talk to you more about becoming sober, but a quick off yeah. question. How do you sure. enjoy your coffee? Um, so today, it's, it's funny that you mentioned it. Uh, today, I'm doing something a little different. I, um, I've been experimenting with a bunch of different kinds of milk lately. Um, I finally, this time I'm trying the, um, like the, the higher protein milk, um, put a, I put in a little more than I wanted to. Usually I'll go with a little bit of creamer and a little bit of sugar. Cause I need a little bit of the cream to cut the bitterness and just a little bit of sugar to make it fun. Yeah. And how do you like enjoy the coffee? Do you make you anxious or do you just like, it's just, perfect Oh, Oh, I see what you mean. Um, so I will say that I do, I do drink decaf. Um, I drink decaf when it's hot or, and like decaf espresso with like lattes and things. I do like cold brew. I do like cold, cold brew doesn't make me super jittery weirdly. Um, but yeah, no, I, my mom drinks tea. Like she is a major, like she'll drink you know, three cups a day of tea. She just loves it. And so growing up, I drank decaf tea with her and I never liked it. Yeah. Never been a tea guy. I don't know. Um, and then in college, I started drinking a little coffee because that's what you do in college. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I was like, oh yeah, no, no, no. Like my palate, like I, I really like the acidity. Like the acidity of the bit, like that's what wakes me up. With the heat, I don't know. I like it. I'm a big fan. Have you ever noticed that your diet makes a difference in how you feel in terms of confidence, um, your creativity, maybe brain fog, nothing? I'm telling you, man, it is. It's annoying how much diet affects my mood. Like, it's the kind of thing that everybody has been telling me forever. And especially with the pandemic, I was, I'm like, Oh God, they're so right. Because, you know, listen, during the pandemic, you know, I just moved to Los Angeles. Um, I had gained a lot of weight when I was in New York. Um, I was, I had probably gained 20 pounds over where I was like really comfortable being and got to LA. I started working out more, was doing well, lost a bunch of that weight kind of right away. And then the pandemic hit and then everything kind of went out the window, but I was still sort of maintaining, um, you know, and now the things are sort of starting to get back to normal and I'm, you know, figuring different things out. I mean, I noticed it within a day if I, when I eat really tight, right. When I'm like, you know, uh, a good balance of the macros, 
not a lot of salt, um, being conscious of starch versus greens and vegetables, things like that. Um, focus on protein and just like, I don't know, like the stuff that you're like, no, my body obviously wants this. My mood is like double what it is compared to the days when it's like, you know what? I think today might be a 12 taquito day. I think, you know what? No, we're just going to eat the whole box. And that's going to be all the food that I eat for the day. It's just going to be taquitos. And then I'll eat a salad tomorrow. Right. I feel it immediately. And so one of the reasons that I've started to like refocus my energy and intention back on my diet is because I know how much better it makes me feel and how much more confident I am. And, you know, as, as you know, we've talked about, I don't have a lot of like anxiety or nervousness, but listen, I, I, I definitely struggle with a little body dysmorphia for sure. I'll look at myself in the mirror. You know, we were, I was ax throwing with my girlfriend yesterday and she took some pictures and I was like, mm, okay, <laughs> that is a, that's a butt. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what my butt looks like. Okay. Fair enough. You know, so I do, I do have sort of those, um, again, I wouldn't necessarily call them insecurities, but certainly like, you know, the, how I see myself doesn't always line up with my physical, you know, physicality. And I can, you know, if I, you know, if I feel myself a little heavier in the midsection, like, yeah, I feel that because I have to physically carry that weight around with me. And I don't feel as light and I can feel my glutes working a little harder to get upstairs or whatever it is. So, yeah, no, I feel those those physical effects very, very keenly. The first thing that I work with people when they come to me, for example, anxiety mm-hmm. or depression or their brain fog, they lack creativity mm-hmm. and those kind of stuff. It's like, let's get to the diet. Let's make it very easy to to digest you talk yeah. about the vegetables and starches that's a big thing like if you, some people are sensitive to starches it's best for yeah. them to eliminate them or let's say for example they're drinking milk and they feel that opioid effect they get brain fog from it. it's like let's try a2 goat milk for example yeah and it eliminates that opioid effect so i feel a lot better so it's really great that you that you like intuitively um alter your diet like that yeah so i so i started you know we talked about like you know being athletic and whatever i you know, so I got sober in 2016, started to lose some weight. And I've always been like, you know what? I, I want to get back into like working out or doing something. And I got a big promotion in my job, my job, a couple jobs ago, um, was making a lot more money kind of overnight. I was like, you know what? Fancy gym membership, personal trainer. We're doing this. I have the money. Let's go. And once I started, it took me a few months to like ramp up to it and to like, just get accustomed to working out multiple times a week. But once I did, I was like, oh, I need to, if I eat better, then I can train better. And if I train better, that means that my body will want to be fueled better. And it's, it was such a clear upward spiral that that's what sort of catalyzed my awareness of food to mood yeah. yeah have you do you have any tricks that if you get a little bit of nervous like let's say i'm going mm-hmm. on stage what can i do like just breathe a little bit maybe pinch yourself slap yourself in the gotcha. face i don't know like what do you do yes yes i do 
this is going to sound like some Zen nonsense, but it works for me. It works every time. Let the people around, like borrow the energy from the other people. Right. Like, cause here's the thing. Cause if I'm, let's say I'm nervous about something, right. Well, it probably means that I'm overthinking it. It probably means I'm in my head about something. It probably means that I'm focusing on something that doesn't really matter or isn't in alignment. But the whole reason that I do what I do, and quite frankly, why I think we are all on this planet is to learn to connect with each other. That's it. That's the whole game. So if I'm feeling kind of nervous or, or unsure, I'm like, okay, who, who am I with? Who is my scene partner? Right? Even, even if it's just, let's say I'm just singing a solo, right? Let me take an extra five seconds with the accompanist. Be like, how's your day going, man? How are you doing? All right, so we're going to be doing this song. Oh, yeah, I love this song. Yeah, I know, right? We did this last time. Okay, so we're doing, I don't know, just finding these little tiny moments to connect with the positive energy around you. For me, that is, that is a better trick than like, okay, let me breathe or exhale or do some sort of whatever. Yeah, I like that. That's really cool. Have you ever experimented with a supplement that helps with the creativity or the fluidness or something, any kind of supplement that helps you? I quite honestly, I don't even know that I could name a supplement that could help with that. Like I have no frame of reference. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you, you lived many different, uh, creative artistic lives, many things yeah. that you do, like yeah. from what age did you know, like, this is, this is what I want to do. I was, okay. So it was 92, March of 92. So I was five going on six. And there was the touring production of Jesus Christ Superstar uh, with the original 70s cast, Carl Anderson. And as I mentioned before, I was adopted. So I grew up around all white people all the time. And it was fine, whatever. Nobody was ever mean to me or nasty. And I always had a pretty, like I, a clear sense of like, oh, I was born in India, but I'm American. And these are my grandparents. And that's it's whatever, right? But subconsciously I was like, man, I'm the only one who looks like me. And in the early nineties, there were not a lot of people who looked like me in movies and TV shows. Right. So when I was like watching movies as a kid, it was just a lot of white people and that was fine. It was easy for me to identify with Marty McFly in back to the future. I thought he was super cool, right? He plays guitar and I, my, I play the guitar a little bit. I was five, whatever, but like, Oh, great. It's the whole thing. And, but I remember I saw his productions of Jesus Christ Superstar with Carl Anderson as the lead as Judas. And it's him on a stage full of white people, but he is the, like, he's the dude holding it down the whole time. And he was amazing. Like he was unbelievable. And at the very end, our, my dad's friend put me on his shoulders and he walked me down to the front so I could wave to the guy. Right. He walks down to the front during the curtain call and they're all dancing on stage. And this dude points at me in the audience, this little five-year-old kid. And I was like, oh, I guess I know what I'm doing for the rest of my life. That was probably a very great experience. It was awesome. And what was really cool is, again, I had a lot of support. 
a lot of encouragement, a lot of infrastructure around me to allow, to allow that passion to flourish. But, you know, it really wasn't until I was 15 and I did a little like, you know, not singing competition, but it was like a singing adjudication. You sing for some voice teachers and they give you a grade and some notes, you know, of, you know, high school singers looking to improve, right? Like an all state kind of a thing. And I went there and I did it and I got like glowing reviews. People were like, um, that was, you're 15. What is happening? You're fantastic. And it was sort of at that moment that I was like, oh, this actually, like, yes, it's a passion, but like, no, this, this is a legit job. Like, like I'm not crazy for wanting to be a professional performer of some kind. Um, you know, and now I do a lot more TV and film. I've sort of put the musical theater career to rest just because I, the lifestyle was not for me. Um, you know, but I mean, honestly, since just watching movies and watching the Oscars, it, it always has felt like a foregone conclusion that eventually I would do this for real. It was never, you know, even when I was in sixth or seventh grade and like doing little auditions here and there and like thinking about moving to LA and, you know, what it would take to try and be a child actor the reason I didn't pursue it, you know, my parents, again, parents are very supportive. They're like, if this is a thing, like you take it seriously, whatever. Um, but the reason I said no is I was like, no, 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 I'll get there. Eventually I will be a Hollywood actor. This is not a question. So let me be a kid now and let me have like all of these life experiences of adolescence, because as soon as I do become a Hollywood star, all of that will go away. My life will, my life will change on a dime. Yeah. And I will never get those experiences back. So let me enjoy this now and live a life and be a person. So yeah, it's always, it's never been a question. So we earlier talked about, um, you know, you felt you were fantastic. Every, you were getting feedback that you were fantastic. Yeah. But for some reason, you felt like you, you weren't executing enough. So how mm-hmm. do you now get yourself to execute? Because I know a lot of people is like, you know yeah. what? That would be nice, but it's kind of like an afterthought and don't really execute. Yep. And yep. I was guilty of that as well. It's like, I know I yep. should do this, but you're not doing it. Yep. What do you, how, how do you get yourself to execute? That's a great, great question. Because it goes, for me, it's less about, because I can always execute in the moment. 90% of the time, like my consistency is very high. The reason I wasn't booking things is because I didn't actually want to book the things. I don't actually like doing musicals. Yeah. That's why I wasn't booking them. That's it. That's the whole game. And all of the shows that I would be in callbacks for, if I didn't want to book the show, I just wouldn't give a good audition. Like, it's just that simple. Whether consciously or unconsciously, I would not do my best work because I didn't want the prize at the end. So I have learned to be really, really clear about, okay, anything that I want to do at the, anything that I want to do, I want to do it at the highest level, right? If it's my profession or my passion or whatever, right? So 
that takes a lot of work, time, dedication, sacrifice, throw in whatever buzzwords you want. They're all true. So I got to do the work beforehand to make really, really sure that this is the thing that I actually want. Because if I actually want something, I'll just do it. I, it just happens. But where I get screwed up is doing something that I think I should do or that other people want me to do or that will look good on a resume, like all of the nonsense that doesn't matter. That's when I don't execute. That's when I only give it 85%. And when we're talking about Broadway shows, 85% does not cut it. Yeah. Right? So, but when I'm really aligned to be like, oh no, I want this. Like, done. Then I'm 95 to 100 in my sleep. That is good. I have a few questions, but I Talk feel like me. it's a little bit like all over the place. So I don't know exactly it's all good. how to phrase it. It's all good. It. I got you. I got you. It's kind of like in line with what you just mentioned, because sometimes, you know, you, you let's say you're growing, right? Mm -hmm. You're growing on your own. You don't need to book something. But right. you know that if you book something, you can fast track your growth. And it's mm -hmm. not that you don't like doing that event. It's maybe that you are unsure if okay. that makes any sense. Yeah. No, okay. I, I think I see what you mean. So in my case specifically with musical theater, like there was very, it was very much like, oh, I know like deep down subconsciously, like I don't like rehearsing for musicals. Right. I, so I did a lot of concerts, which I loved because it was one rehearsal, one performance done. But rehearsing for a musical, it's like four weeks. And then you do four weeks of previews and you're changing things and it's a whole thing. And I was like, oh, I just don't like this process. Mm -hmm. But when there are there have been times and I'm like. Oh, I think I could like this. and I don't know. And there's a lot of uncertainty wrapped around it. The, the deciding factor for me and where I, what helps me clarify whether or not something is worth pursuing or really, really investing is, is will I like the process? Because you're right. Listen, if I had booked Hamilton of any of the times that I had auditioned for it or gotten called back for it, yeah, that booking Hamilton would have done a lot for my career, probably. Who knows? I have no idea. But that's kind of the point is I actually have no idea if booking Hamilton would have gotten me closer to my goal of being a Hollywood star. Right? All I know is what the process of rehearsing for a musical is like. Yeah. And, you know, think about it in terms of relationships you don't know how any given relationship is going to end up, right? You don't, whether it's a personal relationship, a familial relationship, a professional relationship, because other humans are involved and they are humaning along with you, right? So all that you can really invest in is the process. And if you like the process, if you're like, you know what? I don't know where this job is going to lead. Me taking this job, I have no idea what's going to become of it at the end, who I'm going to meet, how it's going to change my life. 
but I know that I like going to this office every day. I know I like the work that I do and I like the people I work with. You know what? That's good enough for me. Yeah. And I would assume like the, the job that you do, you might not like every step of it, but let's sure. say you like 90%. Like what is that determining factor for you? Yeah. You know what? That's a, that's a really, really good point. Um, I assume. So for, so for me, the threshold is I'm willing to, as long as the amount that I like something is between 80 and 85%, I'll do it. I'm good. It does not need to be perfect. It does not even need to be an A. You know, I'm willing to put up with 15% of the time just putting up with nonsense. That's fine, right? Um, When it's more than that, that's that's when it's no good, right? You don't you don't want to dip too far below eighty, unless, or how about this? The further away you are from, let's say eighty percent is your threshold, right? Has to be. I have to like this at least eighty percent of the time. Okay. If you dip below eighty percent, the further you dip below it the more certain that outcome has to be, right? So if it's like, man, half the time, this is just miserable. Okay, cool. Then that payoff has to be dead certain. You need it like in writing. I am doing, these are my responsibilities for the next three months for Q2 from April 1st to June 30th, this is my job. On July 1st, I will be promoted to X, Y, and Z. I'll be making X, Y, Z amount of money. Like you need a lot more clarity if you're going to put, you know, if you're going to put up with nonsense, right? But because that's really hard to get, that's why I say, make sure that what you're doing, you like it 80% of the time. Yeah, I like that. That's a good number. So you said you've been sober for six years now. What was happening on there? Oh, near-death experience. Legit near-death experience. Listen, I, as we've talked about, musical theater, not my friend. I love the art form. I love singing. I love performing. The actual life of a musical theater artist, not for me. And, you know, I struggled with, with drinking in college. Um, because again, especially at the time I was very like, go, 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 never stop, never stopping. And I would drink as a way to sort of like give myself a release valve. Right. Well, New York is a city. It is the city that never sleeps. And I'm so glad that I am in Los Angeles now because it's so much healthier for me. But, you know, New York was a very go, go, go kind of city. It was a city with a big drinking culture. So the amount that I was drinking didn't seem weird to anybody because I wasn't even drinking that much compared to some people. Um, you know, and I, it, it basically was just like every weekend, it just got more and more and more and more out of hand. And finally, one night, like there have been a couple of times where I was like, I feel like I'm flirting with death here. I feel like I feel like we're rolling the dice. 
and playing a pretty risky game. But again, everybody else was drinking just as much as I was, you know, whatever. And then finally one night um, I was at a party and just, it was a great party, but I drank my face off. It was, it was a lot. And drunk Raja does not make good decisions. What I should have done was take a cab home. What I did instead was, ah, I'll take the subway. So I get on one of the subway cars. I go to the place where I need to transfer. And at this point, like I can barely stand, see anything. I'm done. And subway train comes. And I almost walk in front of it because I can't stand up straight. Yeah. And miraculous hand whatever pulled me away from the train tracks. I get on the right train. I get home. And the next morning I wake up and I was like, oh, cool. I never get to drink again. (laughs) Done. Scary. Immediately. Because again, because it was so clear that oh, what drinking can lead to this? Nope. And also, it was also around the time that like Hamilton was really big and I was auditioning for it and there was a lot of hype and a lot of, and I, I don't know, I felt like my career was about to take a big step in a positive direction. And I thought back to all the movies that I watched growing up and all the TV shows where you have kind of the, screw up alcoholic drug addict person who gets famous before they work out their inner demons and those movies do not end well right and i was like oh i don't no 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 i don't want that ending like clearly there's some stuff that i need to work out inside of me and i want to make sure all that's worked out before i get famous because I don't want to be locked into whatever person. Because they say, every celebrity talks about this. Once you become famous, your personality gets locked in. Most of the time. Because you, you have so many enablers around. I remember when I did the very first time I was on a professional film set. Filming a TV show. And it was like for NBC, very fancy. Like as big a budget you know, as whatever there were production assistants whose job it was to hold our phones when we were filming and then give them back to us between takes. Like that was his, that's what he was doing on set. And I was like, what, what, no, dude, it's all, I don't need my phone between takes. It's fine. You're, you're good. And like, and you'd be like, that's awesome. Like, can I get you a water? Can I get you a, so like something from craft services? Like there's anything you need, like I'm here for you. And I was like, it's, you know, and I, and finally I was like, you know what? I would love a water whenever you have a second. He was like, you got it, man. And I was like, what is ha- guys? But I mean, here's the thing. I am so lucky that I had my first experience in that kind of environment as a grown man. Yeah. Because if I had had that, if somebody treated me like that when I was 22, oh my God, I would be the worst human alive. Are you yeah. kidding? 
Well, I really appreciate you sharing that story. I'm really glad you're okay. I am sober. too. Yeah, man, yeah, that would, that's too. crazy. That would have been very unfortunate event. Yeah, very unfortunate. So what does digital minimalism mean to you and how, why is it so important to you? Oh, yes. Yes. All right. So if you haven't, it's, I don't even know how to summarize digital minimalism without totally butchering it. It's basically the idea of using technology exclusively in a way that serves you is the way that I look at it. I got into digital minimalism when I first sort of became aware of it and was like, oh, I need this to be kind of how I live my life was two months before the pandemic hit. And then, quite honestly, I abandoned it immediately because I was like, okay, I'm in a new city. I don't have friends here yet and I can't make friends in person. Okay living a digitally minimal life is not healthy during a pandemic because then I will, I will just go crazy from isolation. Right. But I would say that now I'm not, I've my, my views on it have evolved because I have come to understand, especially post pandemic, so much of the work that we do is digital. Yeah. Right. Me, like, so I don't have a Facebook anymore because it was toxic and it wasn't serving my goals. I'm barely on Twitter. I'm only on Twitter so that I can verify that tweets that I see are real. Honestly, that's all I I was like. That tweet seems a little out of pocket. Let me Google, let me look up this person's Twitter feed. Oh, wow, they really said that. They said that with their whole chat. Okay, right? Um, you know, but like, for instance, I, I don't check my phone in the morning. I don't check my messages in the morning. I like, I wake up, go to the bath. I do all my, my morning routine. I do like a little meditation in the morning and then I will turn on my phone. Right. And it's just being for me in, in 2022, given the work that I do, given my job as a performer and, you know, that involves social media. It just does. That is, uh, I don't, I don't have the luxury. I mean, I guess I, it's the sort of thing where it's like, Oh, I could, if I wanted to, but like, you know, I'm on TikTok because it's a great platform for me. Right. Um, so I don't do a, you know, a lot of the hallmarks of digital minimalism just because of my job, but um, you know, I, I don't have notifications on my phone, for instance. Yeah. Um, because I don't want to constantly be pinged that something is happening, right? And alongside of that, my girlfriend knows that I don't usually have notifications on. My phone's on silent mode. So... Uh, I also have a little flip phone emergency phone that is on all the time so that I can turn my phone off at night. Or if I'm like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll tell my girlfriend, my mom or whatever. You're like, Hey, I'm watching a movie. I'm sort of like in for the night. I'm not going to be texting. My phone will be off. If you need me call the emergency phone. Yeah. Right. Um, 
if I could live a purely analog life, I would. That is not realistic. That's just not how the world works at all. So, um, you know, it is it is something now that the pandemic is easing up and there is a little bit more in person that I do want to start to try to reintegrate. Um, you know, but again, as we talked, going back to that first question, am I an introvert or am I an extrovert? I am extroverted enough and rely enough on communal energy that during a pandemic, digital minimalism is not the healthiest choice for me. Yeah, I feel the same way about um, using, um, you know, digital, um, what's the right word? It's like the phones and apps and all sorts kind of stuff. I don't have notifications. I don't check my emails first thing in the morning and I feel the Mm -hmm. same page on you. I have three last questions for you. Maybe this, this will be a dead end. Maybe not. I'm really interested in what you have to say because you interact with a lot of people, high level people. So Mm -hmm. what traits do you see as alpha, an alpha male? Oh, I love this question. Okay. So I got a caveat this. So we know that the concept of alphaness has been debunked in, in the, the wool. Like we know that's not a real thing, right? Yeah. I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Okay, great. So with that as the caveat, the colloquial understanding, to me, it is all about how am I making the room better? That's it. How am I making other people, how am I bringing out the best in everyone around me? That to me is the number one sign of power, leadership, whatever, whatever you want to call it. That is the number one trait. So being a good leader slash influencer, energizer. Yeah. And again, it's just, here's the thing. Everybody wants to feel seen. Everyone, everybody wants to feel valued. Everybody wants to feel heard. They want to feel like their personal contribution affects the greater good. And so your job as leader, alpha, boss, king, whatever, is to do everything that you can to make everyone feel like they matter. Because if someone feels like their contribution matters, they will go above and beyond to make something happen. I like that. So if you were to think of a alpha, if yeah, you know, if, if sure, I mentioned sure. the word alpha, who do you think of? Ooh, that's a good question. I think of hmm. So I I I see alpha as more of like team leader. Like I like I, I think of that, I think of that image where it's like boss versus leader where there's like the five people and they're like pulling the thing and the boss is sitting on top where the leader is leading the charge and pulling just as hard as everybody else there's actually my spin instructor his name is andrew shuth uh andrew shuth i think you pronounce his last name you can find him uh crushed by andrew on all the social medias that dude is to me the pinnacle of leadership alpha whatever, because, so he teaches a bunch of fitness classes in particular, I take spin with him. These are hard classes. Like these are 
elite athlete level spin classes. And he's, you know, shouting out instructions and go fast and boom, boom, boom. But he's doing it too. He is going just as hard as we are, if not harder. And so he is, he is setting the tone and setting the example of behavior for everyone around them. And I guess that's sort of like the second quality. Like the first quality is bringing out the best in everybody around you. But the second is absolutely leading by example and modeling the behavior that you want from everyone else. And you don't have to be in charge to do that. He just I'm, happens yeah. to be. I like that. I like that a lot. And thank you for answering those questions, even though they might have been really odd. Um, <laughs> so I had a lot of fun talking to you, and I think we covered a lot of ground. The audience yeah. definitely going to love this. Likewise, so, likewise. Roger, I, I really appreciate your comment on. We can always do a part two if more questions come. I'm going to ask my audience if they have more questions. Yeah, absolutely. For if yeah. they do, and I'm, you know, I'll, I'm happy to answer. And if we want to do a do a part two follow-up. I'd love to, I'd love to answer some questions. It's fantastic, man. All right. I really appreciate you coming on and Thank talk you. to you soon then, man. Cheers. Talk to you soon.